always thought, well, I better do something. So I went to night school for the year, um, studied at three A-levels, did, did them in a year, got AAA, finished up at Leicester Uni studying EU law, which um, just, just looking back, probably wasn't the best of choices. Um, and um, managed to get myself a training contract with a very small high street practice in Leicester, um, doing crime, family and mental health law. Um, this was partly because, as I'll go on to um, explain in one of the subjects tonight, um, I fell into it, as most solicitors do, it all comes from links in various different different places. And my, my, my journey into law was exactly that. And I'll, I'll come to how I did it as we go through the talks. Um, but after, after spending um, three years as a training solicitor, because I did a part-time study contract, which meant I, I did a training contract at the same time as I was studying for the legal practice course at the Moffat Uni, um, and um, got paid to go out to the crime work and then went up to the LPC at weekends doing distance learning. Um, I then finished up qualifying, um, left the firm I trained with as quickly as possible, as most trainees solicitors do. Um, I think when you've been somewhere as a trainee, it's very often a good idea to move on anyway, because everyone at the firm always views you as a trainee solicitor and you don't ever quite get the respect that you do if you join a new practice as a qualified solicitor. Um, and I finished up in Nottingham working for a very small legal 500 specialist practice. We did sex offenders um, and criminal law and spent two years doing that. But when I, when I, when I qualified, I went through agencies for jobs and discovered that Michael Page was going to get paid four and a half thousand pounds to find me a job for 20,000 pounds with a firm at Leicester. And when I asked the agents um, who's dealing with my case how much he was going to get paid, he actually told me. And it was that point when I thought, well, if I can get paid that sort of money, then probably being a, being a, being a solicitor is not for me, um, particularly not doing crime, which again is one of the subjects tonight as to whether you do crime as a choice or, or whether it, it's something that you do as a vocation. Um, so I spent about two years and then I moved on. I set up 10%, which is a legal recruitment agency. I did that in my spare time. It then became night shifts, then became all of the weekends. And then I finished up working part-time as a crime solicitor and then finished up handing in, in my notice and building the practice where I've been for the last 20 years. So I, I currently um, own 10% legal recruitment. Um, I also have a business brokerage. We buy and sell law firms across the country um, from practices from around two to three million, so fairly small, right down to shell practices where somebody's built a practice, they don't have any clients, but they want to get rid of it. Current price is around 25,000 if you want a quick way of getting a training contract. Um, and um, those are the two things I do. I have other interests as well. I, I own a transcription business um, and we also do um, careers on the side as well, although that's more for a hobby than it is for actually getting paid. Um, so that's about me. It was a very unusual route into law, but you quite often find that if you went through 120,000 solicitors, which is the current number on the roll, you'd probably find about two thirds of them who've got similarly different approaches uh, to getting into law than just applying to magic circle firms, getting a training contract, qualifying, and then carrying on their career from there. And particularly so for high street law, which is, um, is that the first thing we're doing tonight? Yes, no, no, secondly. Um, high, high street law tends to be contacts rather than ability. So I didn't get my training contract because I had any ability whatsoever. I got my training contract, it's a fairly long story and I'll come to it when we go into nepotism. I got it through my um, fiance at the times, mother's typing tutor, typing tutor's husband, who was a criminal solicitor and gave me two, two months work experience at his practice. And that is something that we'll move on to tonight when I get onto the nepotistic side of being in law. Okay, so I finished the first section and I think I'm in time. Um, I, I, I can't see the chat anymore because I've shared my screen. So, um, and Jess, is there any um, queries at, 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 the, at the moment that I need, I need to go through or do I move straight on to the next thing? No, there's no questions at the moment. Um, just go on to the next one and then if there is any, I can just pick them up after the next section. Okay, fine. Um, the first, the, first, the first section I want to go through is problems getting training contracts. And I thought this might be a good place to start. And um, please feel free to fire any questions you like at me 
um, in respect of this, I've got five things that I, I thought it would be worth going through. Um, but if, you, if you've got anything that you want to ask me at this stage, then put it into the chat. And if someone could just shout out, then I can stop gabbling and we can move on to specifics. Um, the first thing I wanted to address was mitigating circumstances. Uh, because this is one of the biggest areas when when we I, I don't know if any of you have looked at the 10% website, but one of the things we do is free careers advice. So we ask people to send us their queries. Um, we we respond to it in a blog article um, and, 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 and put our response on the website for anyone to see. It doesn't cost anything, gets us traffic, so pretty much everyone's happy. One of the things that comes up time and time again is mitigating circumstances that, that um, people will get in touch with an application for a job, a paralegal job, which can just be a question relating to general applications. And it will be when I sat my degree um, in my final exam, I had mitigating circumstances. And that's why I've got a, a third, a two, two. Or when I was a, a well, yeah, so when I was doing my A levels, um, my dad dropped down dead from a heart attack um, and as a result I got two D's in the knee. How do I deal with this? Um, and it, it, it comes up so often but our answer is pretty much always the same. So I, I thought I'd start with this and then move on to other areas but essentially the way to think about mitigating circumstances is to put it into a business environment. So say that you were to um, have a job working as a conveyancing solicitor it's coming up to a Friday. Friday is the busy day for conveyancing because everyone competes on a Friday. Friday afternoon, Thursday night, um, let's say your dog dies. So it gets to the Friday morning, you ring into work and say, oh, I'm sorry I can't come in, the dog's died. Um, what do you think is going to happen to your relationship with your clients, with your colleagues, with your boss, if you do something like that? And if you think about it, if you're a student and you're trying to excuse something that happened, say, five, six years ago. I was, well, I, I got a 2-2 because the night before my exam, my dog died. Is that going to make you a better candidate for that particular firm when you're making that job application? And I would suggest that in 95, 96% of cases, it's a better way of dealing with it to actually say, well, hands up, I didn't perform on that day, I could have done better. But that's what life's dealt me. That's what I've got. I've got a two-two. I've got to deal with it. I can't excuse it, because in the vast in in the vast majority of cases, mitigating circumstances aren't mitigating circumstances at all. They're an excuse. And if you put it in a business environment, it makes it it makes it look very um, very different. So if you're thinking about putting mitigating circumstances on job applications because you think it's going to help your job application chances. Chances are, I, I would suggest, in most cases, unless it's a very good one, um, it's not going to help you at all. It, it almost puts you at a disadvantage because the firms see that you're trying to excuse something that happened rather than just dealing with it and getting on with your life moving forward. Two, two degrees, very good example. Um, one of the questions I often get asked is, if I've got a two, two degree, is it the end of the world? So far as my um, um, legal career is concerned, life generally, etc. The very quick answer is no. Um, we come across, I've got 12,500 solicitors registered on our books, um, and I've been dealing with solicitors for over 20 years doing recruitment. I also see paralegals, legal executives. Um, a good chunk of those solicitors have a 2 2 degree, and some of them even have third class, some of them don't even have a degree, or if they do, it's just a pass. Um, Quite a lot of paralegals now, though, to get ahead, find that they do have to have a 2-1 degree, unless they're very lucky. Um, we do see quite a lot of people coming through in more recent times who um, have 2-2 um, degrees and then struggle to get on further up the ladder onto the training contracts and to qualify. I think firms have become a bit more selective in recent times, but it, all, it, all it means is if you've got a 2-2, you have to work harder. It's as simple as that your life is not going to be as easy as somebody who's got AAA at A level, good um, things outside of law, bit of work experience, gone through their law degree, got very high 2-1, won a few prizes or got first class. Their life's going to be a heck of a lot easier than yours. It doesn't mean that you can't be as successful as them going forward with your law career. 
all it means is that you've just got to work harder at it and have a bit of luck in, in place of that effect. Um, so a 2-2 degree, not the end of the world. Don't bother applying for jobs if it's over 2-1 degree. doesn't matter what they say. You're not going to get it. There's hundreds of people out there. If the 2-1 is the absolute minimum that that firm will accept, it's pointless. You're wasting your time applying. You may as well focus your energies elsewhere. Um, I give you a couple, a couple of quick examples with that. We recruited for a legal 100 practice about three or four years ago, looking for a 10-year qualified commercial solicitor. We're paying, I don't know at the time, 9,500 pounds for them. Um, we sent off four applicants, two of them looked really good, and the HR manager rang me up and said, um, um, firstly, can you tell me what A-levels candidate one got? Now, this was a solicitor in their 40s, and they want to know what A-levels they got. Um, the other one, they wanted to know what degree he got because he'd left it off his CV. One of them didn't have good A-levels, one of them didn't have a good degree, they both got rejected because the, the, the legal profession always like consistency when it comes to, or sorry, I should say, certain strands of the legal profession. They've always liked consistency when it comes to um, your, your academic career. It's the consistency they like the look of when it comes to considering you for, for jobs. And there are firms out there who instantly reject if, if you haven't got too long. And it's got to be from a university that they recognize as a good university, for want of a better term. Um, poor, poor eight levels. I had a question come in very recently from somebody saying, should I go back after I finish my degree and redo my A-levels because I can see the problems that are coming up? I want to work for a magic circle firm. You can read my response on the, on the website because I think I only posted it last month. But um, it, one thing I would not advise redoing would be your A-levels. I've done two months of A-levels and I, I wouldn't want to do any more. I think to, um, doing them twice was a, was a killer. Uh, but if, if, if you've got a degree, I think you just have to accept that if you've got AAE or AAD or ABD at A-level, that's what you've got and life's dealt you that hand and you need to deal with it and concentrate on your degree. A first-class degree from a good uni is probably going to get you further than worrying about your A-levels. Um, but it is true that there are firms out there in the I'd like the um, instance I've, I've, just, I've just given you where the HR manager was still focusing on somebody's A-levels when they're in their 40s. They do stay with you for life, um, if, but how you go into law may well be different if you don't qualify to get into certain practices because your A-levels aren't a sufficient standard. No work experience? Well, if you go to the 10% website, it, there's a completely free of charge guide on how to get work experience. If you've got to a stage further than your third year at, at, at university and you don't have work experience, you need to sit down and seriously examine what, what and why you're doing it, why, why, why you're not getting it. I don't know how anybody can decide they want to be a solicitor or a barrister or a legal executive for that matter if they haven't got any experience to back up that decision. So if you haven't got any, go and get it. Um, there is no easy way of getting work experience, but I guarantee you that if you, if you telephone around firms, if you do more than just send tentative email to 200 firms, and actually go out and proactively look, then sooner or later doors do open. And it doesn't follow that if you're not the world's best candidate, that you're not going to get jobs. It does happen. It's just coincidence quite often. Um, I'll give you a very quick example. Many years ago, I worked in practice in Nottingham, and a lad rang us up from Derby Uni and said, have you got any work experience? And at that point in time, I needed someone to go across Nottingham and serve a witness summit for somebody um, in one of the most roughest, nastiest places you could possibly live. Um, he got there, he served the witness summons, so then he got attacked by an Alsatian as he was doing it, um, and he came back to the office, we gave him £10 and said thank you very much. Um, and he started work experience with us uh, two weeks later, stopped with us for three months. Um, he was a Derby Uni student in, in his first year, and his A-levels weren't brilliant, he wasn't the best academic student. If we put it out there for applications, he wouldn't have got it. But just coincidence had it that he just happens to be on the spot at the right time. Um, and that is often how work experience works. Um, so uh, there we go. Overseas qualifications, I just wanted to touch on that because this comes up to us as a question quite often. If you've come from another jurisdiction, um, so you've done your high schooling in America um, or you've spent a bit of time in Australia, when you do your job applications, it's often is the case that um, you don't always 
present your qualification in in the way that you could. And by that I mean that if you um, if you just list the list the qualifications without actually putting the UK equivalent next to them, it makes it very awkward for the recruiter to know what the hell's going on. Some of the larger practices will will do a little bit of work around that to check that, see if, to see if you're compatible. Smaller practices and agencies just won't bother just read your application or not bother reading it uh, because it's it's too much effort. If we've got plenty of applicants, why would we bother spending too much time looking at yours? So if you've got overseas qualifications, try and put down the British equivalent of them um, in order to make the life easier of the recruiter that you're going to. Same applies for Scottish um, Scots lawyers. If, if, if you're applying up to Scotland, try and put them in a way that reflects hires. If you're coming from Scotland to get um, yeah, to London or England and Wales, then um, try and try and put them in a way that would be recognisable to us. Okay, so problems getting training contracts, that's my spiel. Um, if anyone's got any questions, um, just let me know and then we can move on to, on, on to the next subject. Um, there is one question in the chat. Okay. Um, so it says, I have a BTEC which was the equivalent to three A-levels, A-star standard. Um, Olivia asks, if I explain this within my application, would this be okay? Yes. Um, BTEC, BTEC has a misfortune with some of the firms as, as being sort of viewed as a, a core cousin to A-levels. Um, in fact, when they first came out many years ago, firms, firms actually questioned what, what, and what on earth they, um, they were. But I think now um, firms, are, uh, firms are a lot more comfortable dealing with them and a bit more acceptable accepting of the fact that a BTEC is equivalent to an A-level. I think they're both NBQ level four, is it, or level five, but they're both the same, they're both classed as an equivalent. If you're applying to smaller practices, you need to explain what a BTEC is, because a partner in their 60s working at Blogs & Co on a high street probably won't have a clue what a BTEC is. So it'd probably be better to list it, put it, put it on your application that you've got three A-levels, A-star equivalents, and then put in brackets. Or, or something similar to that. Okay, were there any other queries? That was perfect. And no, there's no other questions in the chat yet. Um, if anyone does have a question, just pop it in now, um, but we'll start to move on to the next section. Okay, fine. Right, high street, high street law versus commercial law. This is, this is one of my favorite things to gabble about because I, I, I've had experience of both. Um, when I was applying for jobs, I was aiming at commercial law. Uh, but then unfortunately I met my future wife and we needed to be in Leicester so I took a job with a high street firm. So I did work experience at lots of commercial firms. I think I went for six training contract interviews and assessment centre days and all the rest of it with commercial practices. I've worked in commercial and corporate law ever since 2001 in-house for my own companies. Um, so I can see it from both sides. So what I'd normally start off this section with saying is what should I choose? What, what, should, what should you choose when it comes to law? High street law is the servicing of individuals. So it doesn't necessarily follow that um, Blogs & Co on the high street is a high street law practice. It may well be a niche commercial practice because a commercial practice acts for business. And it's as simple as that. If you work for individuals, you're a high street practice. If you work for business, you're a commercial practice. There's a bit of way between the two so for example and we we work with some high net worth private client firms in london that are technically high street because they're doing dealing with private client laws of probate but actual fact they're probably more niche commercial because of the values of work that they're putting through and the, and the complexity of it but high street law is essentially working for individuals commercial um, commercial firms work for business there is one absolutely massive, huge difference that if you've done any work experience and you've had any involvement with these practices, you'll instantly know what, what it is. It's, it's the money. So I've, just, I've put financial considerations last, and I will come to that and, and go through it in some detail because I think it's one of the most important things with this. Um, but um, high street law is a different world to the commercial world. And it, it's important to be aware of that, that um, if you go into high street, you will have a career where you either stay in a practice um, dealing with the same area of, of or perhaps moving about from practice to practice, stay as a salary solicitor for say 20, 30 years. You'll probably find your income won't go up that much. Um, you'll probably find you'll be doing the same work. 
probably if you're in the same town, you can start to know a lot of the people that you're working with. Um, and um, that's the one that's that's the one strand. The second strand is that you join a practice and after about three to five years, you realize that actually you quite fancy having a go at this yourself. And you're in a very good position to open your own business because you have uh, been working in a small firm. You've obviously been involved in business development because anyone who works in a small firm is. You know how the, the financial side of it works. You know how the, how the, how the um, firm set, set, set up, how to, how to get the insurance. So quite often we see if you go down the high street route, you either end up working as an assistant solicitor forever or you end up running your own practice. It's very rare that high street firms take on partners who then become equity partners these days. It's more common that firms take on salaried partners because it helps them um, in terms of the work that they get in. Um, and it, it's a benefit to them to have you there as a salaried partner, but not for you in the sense that you don't own the business. You're just there as a, a sort of tick box exercise in a way and to give you a bit of prestige in your work. Um, so if you go into high street, those are the two strands that your career will probably take. In commercial, of course, it's completely different because if you join one of the bigger practices, very often your career is mapped out for about 20 years. You can go onto rollonfriday.com and you can see the salary that you're going to be earning at some of the firms. You start on the thing at one level, you move up over the years in, in, in various increments. Um, so, and, and, and quite often there is the option of, of, of becoming a salary partner I don't, I don't think that many of the bigger firms take equity partners in the same way as they used to, and it does often involve quite hefty buy-ins, I think. Um, but um, quite often, you have a long-standing career as a sort of middle-range solicitor working in a bigger organisation with all the benefits but the disadvantages that go with that. Um, what would you enjoy the most? Well, <laughs> having done law, um, not a lot of people, in my experience, enjoy most areas of law. Um, in fact, they positively hate them. I give you a good example, corporate finance. I don't know if anybody on this on this um, Zoom has done any corporate finance experience yet, but corporate finance is one of the most boring, tedious, torturous areas of law you could ever come across. And one of the reasons it's exceptionally well paid is because most people don't want to do it. Um, and the same applies in, in lots of other areas of law, that the areas of law that are a bit more tedious and tiring and not necessarily uh, ones that are going to get you up skipping into work in the morning um, are those that are, that are going to get lots of interest. Um, it tends to be more people fall into areas of law. Um, they don't necessarily choose to do them. It just happens that circumstances are right. They take a trading contract with the firm. They finally get three seats. They do the three seats. The three seats that you do very often dictate the rest of your career. Um, so quite often, um, um, it, what, 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 what you do in the training contract is going to be where you end up practicing. It's difficult to jump out after doing the training contracts into other areas. It's possible. We do see people who do it, but it's difficult. Um, so once you've, once you've taken the training contract, that's probably where you're going to be going for the rest of your career. Um, so quite a lot of the time, people fall into the area. If you like, money commercial is the place to be um, if you like more of a lifestyle which I'll, I'll, I'll move on to now and high street's possibly the place to be um, because um, commercial does involve so it's got slightly dark here um, commercial does involve um, long hours everywhere you work um, we often act in in-house um, for various uh, companies and quite a lot of the people coming through and going to the company will be private practice solicitors from bigger firms who are saying they've just had enough of it. They don't want to do any more 18 hour days, they don't want the weekends taken up. Um, they want to come in in-house where the grass is greener, uh, they don't have to do as many long hours um, and there's there's more flex more more flexible working. I think things have changed in recent times, bigger firms are better at uh, being more flexible, but it is still very much along those lines. We, we do see private practices, commercial, bigger commercial practices people trying to get out because they don't want the hours. Um, smaller commercial firms tend to work lower, uh, tend to work less hours until they get to own the practice and then they work all hours got sent to them because they have to to generate income. Um, so but then even in the even in the high street um, when you get into the ownership levels 
they work flat out non-stop all the time but if you're an assistant solicitor very easy life quite often you go to work nine o'clock you do your three hours in the morning have an hour lunch break go back in the afternoon leave at 5 30. Um, and i think that's why people stay in assistant solicitor roles um, i've recently been working with a practice who are up for sale in Hertfordshire. senior partners turning over five six hundred thousand a year with the, with, with the help of one assistant that, that one assistant um, is generating £400,000 of his work for him. And I, I said to him, when he said he was thinking of selling, I said, have you, have you thought of selling it to the assistant or promoting him and making him an equity partner? And he said, he just doesn't want it. All he wants to do is come into work, do his work, go home. He's not the slightest bit interested in owning, owning the practice. And that, and that, and that in a sense, is a, is, a, is, a, is a nice way to be working if you're if you have ease with yourself working like that, um, then that's 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 the type of career that's going to leave you um, enjoying your time in law rather than being stressed about it. So, in terms of life um, lifestyle choices, um, if you want more time with your family, on the whole, uh, but less money, high street. If you want more money, um, and perhaps having a, 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 a staggered time with your family where you invest the hours now and later on in your career where you can afford to become a consultant and work less hours and spend more time with your family then then commercial and um, a lot of students don't have that choice it's, it's easy for me to sit here and say stand here and say you know you can go and do one or the other because that's that's um, where you can where you can choose your lifestyle but most of us don't have that kind of decision to make circumstances necessitate that we have a job job gets offered you, you you take it that's life financial considerations um quite often when i when i give talks or, or we, we, we speak to people um, solicitors or, or people coming into the profession they don't actually have a clue as to what sort of money they need to be earning or what they would be earning in certain roles so i'll throw a few figures out there um from my experiences just in the last few weeks say um and then it gives you a few ideas as to um Incomes, particularly on the high street, which is where ten percent um, spends spends most of its time, and also in huge commercial. Um, so, <clears throat> I've been recruiting for a family role this week. Uh, three to five years experience, privately funded work, not legal aid. Salary levels thirty-five to forty-five thousand. Um, we've had a legal aid firm in looking for a childcare supervisor doing um, family law. Um, those go for around forty to forty-five thousand. Um, my colleague was recruiting for crime solicitor a few weeks ago, a uh, duty solicitor, five years experience and upwards, 35,000. And um, I had a conveyancing role come in, was yesterday from the permanent side, full time, Hertfordshire, I think that one was, um, 40 to 50,000. I think there's a bonus on top of that. Um, to put that into perspective, if you go on to rollonfriday.com, speak to anyone who's got a training contract with one of the big London firms, most of their secretaries will be earning that sort of money. Um, because their, their trainees start on board and that's when you qualify, you can go straight into just short of six figure salaries. Um, I coached a guy um, who was at Mishkondorea about 10 years ago, he was, he was uh, keen to come out of law. Uh, he was suffering, I think he was close to having a nervous breakdown at the time because of the hours the firm was trying to get him to work. And we, 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 we were looking at alternatives and we spent about an hour and a half going through different options for him. Um, I think he quite fancied the idea of being a conveyancer working nine to five until we got onto salary. Now he was a good number of years' experience. Salary at Mishkong's Mich rate, I think, was 375,000. And I told him that he probably needed to drop to about 40 grand to get a job at a similar level in a conveyancing practice. He was absolutely horrified, if, if not stunned, because he had no idea that solicitors were working for that, for that sort of money. To put 40,000 into context in terms of buying a house for you and your family in five years time um, that would probably buy you half a house if it was a terrace um, on the outskirts of where i live i'm not in london by the way i'm in north wales my company has an office in, in london um, but they'll probably buy you a small terrace house in mold which is our local county 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 town um, if you're on 375,000, you could probably get away with a decent townhouse on the outskirts of london and, that, and that's the difference, the financial considerations. Firms in London, firms, commercial practices pay well because they are the, the enumerated role, uh, 
um, into their work, but they also expect a lot from you, which gets onto the lifestyle choice. Okay, so high street versus commercial law, not often an option, but if it is, have a careful think about where you want to be. Any questions? Uh, yes, we do have some questions. Um, so Tara's asked, um, is high street practice seen as a lesser form of experience compared with doing a training contract at a commercial firm? Is high street practice what? Sorry, I did, I did Sorry. Um, is high street practice seen as a lesser form of experience compared with doing a training contract at a commercial firm? It's not necessarily a, a, a lesser form of experience. If you're talking about a training contract at a high street firm compared with a training contract at a commercial firm, then if you get a training contract at a high street firm, that's where your career is going to be. Um, I, I have had queries in the past from trainees who qualified in high street practices as to whether they can apply them to a, a silver circle or a magic circle firm in central London. That's one of the bigger silver circle, magic circle, are the huge companies like Pippa Chance, etc. And the very quick answer is no, unless you're very lucky or you happen to know someone in the, in the, in the practice. So it's not different, it's not less quality experience, it's just different experience. And you are going to go generally down a different route if you get one sort rather than the other. Perfect. And um, we have another question. Um, so Pan Gak is a dentist and currently studying the GDL. Um, okay. So he has a few years of experience within the dental and medical profession, um, and he's looking to practice within the medical legal industry. Um, right. He doesn't want to give up the practice in dentistry, so he's currently practicing dentistry part time. Um, and he, ha he has the options of either finding a part time training contract or a part time paralegal role. Um, he says, since the training contracts are limited, I'm inclined towards a paralegal role with a medical law firm. I'm hoping to use the paralegal role towards the competencies required by the um, solicitor's regulations authority to register as a solicitor under the new SQE route. Yeah. Um, so he asked, do you think I should aim for a training contract or a paralegal role? In your circumstances, um, I, would, I would be looking at the dental negligence firms. I, th I think they bite your hand off um, for for um, work, um, uh, yeah, to get to get to get you on 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 board. And if you do some research on online, you'll find there's I think there's about twenty firms across the UK who specifically do dental negligence work. And if that's what you fancy doing, I would imagine that there is um, very good opportunities and a good career to have um, for you in that particular route. You're quite right as well. The S the S S S S Q E is particularly tailored to someone like you because you don't need to go off and work for someone for peanuts doing the training contracts in areas that are different to where you want to end up working. Um, you can go and do your dental negligence work. I think you have to get a couple of other areas of experience done as well, but you'll be in the dental negligence field and I, I, I would imagine that's where you'll, you'll want to end up. Great, thank you. Um, so yeah, um, the final questions, um, we can move on to the next section. And if there's anything else I can just ask in the next bit. Okay. Thank you. All right, okay, fine. So the next subject, oh, nepotism in the legal profession. This is, this is one of my favorites because um, I come across so many people who think that this, this doesn't exist and surely it, it shouldn't exist in this day and age. Um, but, but my experience, my experience of nepotism in the legal profession is that it's pretty rife and it's pretty everywhere. It doesn't matter which firm you join, where you are, which strand of the profession you're in. Um, it's nepotism that makes the world go round in a lot of senses. And it's not just nepotism, it's links. It's not necessarily the old boys network of private schools and the, and the clubs in London. It, it tends to be a link to get you to where you want to be. So I thought I'd start this by giving you couple of quick examples. Example one is me, um, because um, when I started out in law, I had no legal experience, other than I think I went to the small claims court with my mum once to represent her, which didn't go well. Um, I um, had no links in, in, into the legal profession, no family links, no friend links, nothing. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, I did, didn't know how to get there. And it just happened that my wife's mother was being taught to type by a lady lived in Wakefield in West Yorkshire and her husband was a solicitor and so my 
wife's mother put a word in for me and got me some work experience. Two months of that, following him around the criminal courts in Wakefield, he thought about doing fine, didn't really interest me that much, he just fancied some work experience. He did conveyancing as well, he did family, but it was the crime that I spent most of the time with him on and um, following him around. I wasn't bothered about becoming a criminal solicitor, um, but when I made applications later on to high street firms in Leicester, I actually wrote on my letter to one of the firms that I'd been to a police station with, with as part of my work experience. And the guy recruiting, just a uh, two-part practice, he misread it. He thought I'd done police station work and I was police station credited. He called me in for an interview um, and because a very long story short, finished up qualifying as a solicitor with that practice. And it was just sheer coincidence, but all stemmed out of connection between my wife, her mother, a typing tutor, and her husband. And that's how quite a lot of law works. So far as nepotism is concerned, um, quite a lot of law firms have sons, daughters, dads, mums, all working in the same practices, particularly in the smaller firms. But it's, it's also prevalent in bigger practices. Bigger practices with HR departments, not so much. They, they, they tend to be more professional, but they do still, and we still see it, they do still give training contracts and roles to family members. I guess in a way it makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty as any, anyone else. I have a company, my daughter works for the company, my wife's a co-director, we both run the business together. Um, my first piece of recruitment in the business was a guy who was at a, a, a play school with one of our kids, his daughter, his son was there, and mentioned he needed a bit of work, played a bit of cricket, cr I played a bit of cricket as well. So he joined my cricket team. Um, he became our first employee. He's been with us ever since. He's also a director of one of our companies. He's just a friend, friend of a friend. Um, no talent, no ability, nothing made him stand out compared with anyone else. And that tends to be how a lot of law works. It's, it's who you know. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I recruited an agricultural solicitor for practice in Shrewsbury. Um, and we just sent out flyers to all firms every week, 8,000 more firms listed candidates. Um, and this particular um, candidate was on the list, which our man rang me up this evening, ran me back after the centre and said, yeah, we'd really like to see this person. And it transpired, she'd worked in a practice with someone from that practice, and they knew someone else, I think their husband and wife were friends together some, some, somewhere else. The practice offered her a job. We got paid, and that and that and that's a classic example, really, of, of, of the way things are in in law. I'm saying it's right or wrong, but that's just how it is. So, how do you benefit? <clears throat> you, if you're looking for training contracts or you're looking for work, have a think about who you know who might have a connection to law. Doesn't matter how tenuous it is. If they're the office cleaner for practice, if if they play badminton with the daughter of the uncle of the senior partner of a firm in Chester, anything like that, if you can get a connection, you stand a lot more chance of getting into that practice than you do than if you were um, if, if you were just making a blind application for sending in a speculative letter. So if you've got a connection into a practice, that's what gets you in. If it's, if it, if it, if it's nepotistic, so what? If it's your dad, mates with someone else, plays golf with them or mum, um, works with someone who knows someone. Use it. Don't don't say, "Oh no, I'd rather stand up, stand up, stand on my own," because everyone else will be doing that. They're all using their connections to get them um, to get the work. Um, life isn't about trying to do things yourself to prove everyone right. It's about using what you've got to get you places. Um, provided it, it, yeah, 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 it's morally and ethically correct, of course. Um, so benefiting, if you want to benefit from it, use your connection, don't shy away from them. If you know someone who's a lawyer, go and speak to them. If you know someone who knows a lawyer, go and speak to them as well. I'll give you a very quick example of the way um, it's, it's particularly right in, in law, before I move on. Um, but years ago, I knew a, a barrister's chambers in, in you know, based in the East Midlands. Um, a, they, they run a recruitment campaign to recruit two new pupil barristers um, into the into the uh, chambers, big chambers, um, and every two or three years, I think they took on two or three new pupils. 
That particular year, I know for a fact, it's a new one of the parks, that they had over 200 applications. And sheer coincidence has it that both the people who got it were um, children of two of the existing barristers. Um, and that is quite common to see. I see it all the time in my recruitment work. Some of the daughters, fathers, husbands. It's a family affair quite often in law, in certain practices. So if you can get family connections into law or links to family friends, doesn't matter how tenuous they are, go and use them see, and, um, and, and see if they pay off. And, and the last thing I put in this section is, is morality, does it play a part? Um, yes, of course it does. Um, I wholeheartedly agree that in an ideal world, I don't think nepotism should play a part at all. I, I, I shouldn't be employing my daughter. If I've got a vacancy, I should be putting it out there so who comes in and making a decision based on who's there. But unfortunately, it's a bit like a lot of things in life. Um, circumstances necessitate certain things, and it's a heck of a lot easier to give your um, child work than it is to go and advertise for someone as a, as a, as a stranger to come into the practice. Particularly as well, and I, I, I finish this off by saying that one day when you when you come to retire, you want someone to take over your business. If you've if you've recruited your son to be your next training solicitor and they qualify, they go off and work somewhere else, but they can always come back and take your company over. So your family family linked to that particular practice stays in, involved. If you if you get a stranger in, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You might not have someone to pass that business on to, you can have to sell it to them, you might not want to, etc. etc. So, there's a lot of factors play a part. Law is particularly bad for nepotism, but you can use it to your advantage because solicitors like networking. They like networks, they like connections, they like working with people they know, they like working with people who other people they don't know, if that makes sense. Okay, I'm done. Any questions? Um, yep, so there is a question from Tara who said that she has the possibility of getting a couple of mini pupillages through um, personal contacts, but she's looking good to go down the solicitor route. So she just wants to ask, is this good experience or will it essentially not count for anything? I do one and I, I do it because um, it's, 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 it's fantastic an interview to be able to say, if somebody says, why do you want to be a uh, why do you want to be a solicitor and not a barrister? Which used to be a classic question. I, I don't know if it still is. Um, but one of the easy ways of answering it then is to use evidence-based responses. So you can say, well, when I did my work experience with Jones and Smith um, in the Conveyancing Rules and Probate Department, I found the work to be valuable because I was helping others. I assisted, I could see it was exciting on coming up to completion. I, I really enjoyed the work. And then when I went to do my work experience at Chambers, I realised what a bunch of deadbeats barristers were, and it just wasn't for me. But if you, if, if, if you haven't done that pupillage, uh, you don't have any experience to fall, to fall back on. Um, so doing a mini pupillage is a fantastic thing. I wouldn't do two, there's, there's no point. Quite a lot of the mini pupillages I've come across when I've been in practice, um, they're not as good anyway as work experience in solicitor firms because they do tend to involve just following a barrister around who probably hasn't got that much time to speak to you. I do generalise because some barristers are fantastic at giving work experience, but a lot of the ones I've experienced and I've had feedback from others have said it's an utter waste of time. But it does mean you get it onto the CV, you tick a box, say you've done it, and give a reason why you didn't end up a barrister. That was perfect. Um, there's no other questions regarding this section, so um, we can move on to the last section. Okay. <laughs> criminal, criminal law, void like the plague, question mark. Um, I put this in here because I, because I, I qualified it to crime, and it's a particular, it was a particular passion of mine when I was a solicitor. And it is something that comes up quite often, particularly around questions such as, I want to be a human rights lawyer, I want to be a crime solicitor, I want to help others. Um, I can see I want to put my law to good advantage to help society. Um, I want to do things to 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 you know, to make the world a better place. Crime is the place I ought to be, um, and it's often thinking like that that ends up with people qualifying as solicitors in crime and then realising to their horror what actually 
working in crime does entail giving and leaving at high speeds. It wouldn't surprise me, I've never seen any statistics on it, but I would imagine that criminal law, possibly family law as well, have some of the highest turnover of staff qualifying and then leaving quickly. Because unlike conveyancing, commercial, shipping, employment, and other areas, crime, the moment you qualify, you get advocacy rights and firms like you to have advocacy rights because then you can earn the money and kick you off down to the court without any training at all, give you a file and say, go and and go and do a trial. Um, and it's one of the most terrifying things you can ever do in your first appearance doing something like that. And some people love it, absolutely love it. Some people hate it. Um, when I when I qualified into uh, law, I joined a practice just as the senior partner was retiring. And he, he's a very, a very well-known, deeply respected guy, had been around 42 years. Um, and he said to me one morning when I was going off to the trial and looking slightly green, he said, um, it doesn't ever get any better. He said, I, I was still sick before every single trial I went to do, even after 40 years. Um, but, and he didn't say sick, but I, I was being polite. Um, it, it's, um, it's, it's, he, was, he was doing that job for 40, 42 years, and it was actually making him physically ill every time he went to do a trial. And I, I think you'd have to question was that the right career for him? Should he have been doing something different? Um, he may have argued that's just one of the things with dealing with bursts of adrenaline before you go into battle, um, which essentially what a trial is. Um, but the first thing I wanted to focus on was finances because there's a, there's a lot of misconceptions out there in relation to crime um, and money to be made and other areas as well. I won't just deal with crime, I'll deal with family legal aid, immigration, and I'll also um, cover human rights as a sort of more generalist area um, because quite a lot of queries we get about I want to be a human rights lawyer. Um, if you're going to take a job in crime, legal aid family, immigration, uh, more at the asylum end of the corporate um, or even employment to a certain extent, um, your income for the rest of your life is going to be very low. It doesn't matter which way you look at it unless you end up owning the practice, in which case you'll probably end up dead at an early, early, early age because of all the stress that's going to be on you, uh, particularly with the way that the um, contracts get, get, get tightened every year. Doing, um, doing an area like this with the, with the legal aid or if it's private and crime means that your income is never, in all likelihood, going to get higher than about 35 to 40 thousand. Um, we still recruit in crime occasionally, just because we used to have very strong connections when there was still market in it. Um, and firms are getting such and so on. Ten-year qualified, solicitor with higher court rights, police station accreditation, duty solicitor accreditation, C CQS or whatever it's called, the criminal criminal accreditation thing that they brought in. Um, and they've got to have 10 years experience. I'm going to pay them 37,000 because we could, we're, we're paying at the top of the rate. And that's very common, um, those sorts of levels, if you can even find a salary role. Quite a lot of practices, but, um, I don't want to slander anyone, but I'm pretty sure most companies, solicitors are these days, um, along with a lot of the other bigger firms, have consultants where they pay them like an Uber, Uber, Uber driver. So if you do the work, you get paid, a bit like a barrister. So go to court, two hours prep, hour attendance, 30, 30 minutes waiting, and then you get paid for that rather than doing a day's work. Um, so um, chances are, if you do this area of law, you're going to need another income. So I have come across crime solicitors who have um, worked the minimum in crime, and then they also have another job on the side that they use to um, keep family going. Um, so um, it, it used to be the case a couple of years ago that people moved all over the world and kept their duties solicitor slots simply in, in crime. The police and the magistrates courts have slots to cover, just in case you, you, you haven't come across this yet, but you get onto those rotors when if someone needs a solicitor, they say, get me the duty solicitor, you get called out and you get paid to do it, and the firms divide it up equally between them according to how many firms are on a particular rotor. Um, we, have, at one point, we knew of solicitors around the world who were signed up to do these as ghost solicitors, essentially, where they were getting paid to do duty work, but not actually be there. 
and so some some people making reasonable money out of it but unfortunately or fortunately the legal aid agency caught onto this and stopped it so now you do have to have a physical presence but it is still possible to do family crime immigration any of these areas of the more and help, helping the needy in society you, you can do it part-time and still get an income from other sources in order to keep your family supported working conditions in crime um, all these other areas can be pretty horrible pretty horrible um, if you are a crime solicitor the first thing you discover is that chances are your client doesn't like you much um, the police really don't like you the court staff not particularly fond of you if you're going to be running around courts and not being theirs uh, magistrate probably won't like you because they don't understand why you've been helping guilty people trying to help um, and the rest of society don't like you because people, uh, people write um, dramas about defences saying how awful they are and the same applies if you work for the CPS it, courts don't like you because you, you can't cope with your work because they give you too, um, too much work to do the police blame you for everything even though it's very often their incompetence that ends up with people getting not guilty um, the defence solicitors don't like you because you don't know anything about your case because you've got 20 degrees that morning and number 13 is not the highest of your priority when you got up for breakfast that morning. Um, so most of the work you do in both of these spheres is, is, is unrewarded on a daily basis. You, you are constantly dealing with confrontation. Everybody's trying to have pick an argument with you. You've got to stand up and, and defend your, the rights of the nastiest piece of work that's ever walked this earth. Um, and um, others aren't going to like you for it. Um, so working conditions don't tend to be good. I, I, I can remember, and I can think of plenty of other slippers who had doors slammed in their face, failed threats sent to you saying the police going to get you if you because you invoke something and got, got, got someone off. Um, they, you, you go to court and you know, mad, certain magistrates aren't going to like you, and the clerks are glaring at you and are wanting to pick an argument. Um, so, Working conditions in crime, not good. Immigration, working conditions there on the legal aid side haven't been great. I know of firms where Fiona has been put under a lot of pressure to fill um, the legal aid agency, uh, piece of board, and um, lots of it, um, and um, then, 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 then being put under pressure to essentially commit criminal offences. Family, legal aid, you're dealing with very vulnerable people who, who really don't know what's going on quite often and uh, going to take it out on you if the decision goes against them even though it's nothing to do with you social workers don't understand your role uh, just in the rest cleaning up money um it, it's 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 a very very stressful in, in environment to be in i should say mental health as well because I, I, I practice in mental health um and that and that's just the same the nurses don't particularly understand why you're there the psychiatrists do understand why you're there, they tend to be a little bit nicer, but your clients really don't like you very often because they don't really understand what, what your purpose is and they blame you when they don't get out um, if they go for a review. Now, I'm, I'm telling you all of this because the working conditions are quite often one of the eye-openers when you first go into something like this. Crime is, um, and these, these, these other areas, um, they can involve very, very long hours working at three o'clock in the morning to get called out to the police station and then getting up to do a trial at 10 o'clock that might last two days, having had very little sleep and next to nothing in terms of financial reward, which moves me on to my final points. If you do something like crime, family, mental health, then one of the areas, one of, one of, one of, one of, one of the good law areas, I guess is the way of putting it, you've got to accept it's a vocation. And if you take it as a vocation, then it can it can be um, one of the most rewarding things you need to do. There's a there's a guy who's just retired from work in Nottingham called Finbar Hennessy. Uh, really nice chap. He used to work for the RSPCA as a, a, a animal cruelty inspector, I think. And he decided one day he was going to qualify as a solicitor. And if you if you type Finbar Hennessy into Google and search what some of his colleagues wrote about him after he retired. It was things like he'd, he'd be at court and he saw you struggling with cases. He'd volunteer to take one of the cases for you, do it for you, without getting paid. Um, and he used to hang around when I was a junior solicitor. And I, 
I had a trial and I, I needed to make a decision as to whether to stick it in the magistrate's court as a trial or plead guilty and try to get it into the youth court. And he actually read the papers for me and said, oh no, I think what you ought to do is this. Um, and he, he, he didn't really care about getting paid. He, for him, it was a, a vocation doing that. He was there to help people through the court experience, not find them, not get them off, just get them through the experience, help others whilst he was there. And I think I think he he found that kind of messianic, for want of a better term, of existence to be extremely rewarding when it came to um, the area of law that he was in. Now I don't think you'd get many commercial lawyers in that type of role who would be hanging around commercially the county court saying, let me help you with that case. Because Everything in law is money orientated, and that's something to be very aware of. It's vocation versus business. You can work it as a vocation, but if you're in charge of that company, you wouldn't be thinking it as a vocation. You'd be thinking how to survive, how to make money, because that's what law, unfortunately, is. Even if you do human rights, of which there are no human rights lawyers, you can search my article on the website about that. Um, if, if you do an area of law that falls within the area of human rights, um, the firm who employ you are doing it because they get paid at some point. Even the solicitors, such as the ones who, who, who defended the Birmingham Six, um, Guildford Four, and all of those, um, I think it was Mrs. Pierce, she 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 had to work pro bono for that. Um, Gareth Pierce, she, she had to work pro, um, pro bono, amazing person. Um, but it, it, in the end, it benefited her practice. In Ran Khan as well. With the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, um, his pro bono work benefited his practice, and it had to because in Lancan, Gareth Pierce, and all of the others do have to earn money in order to survive. They can't just do pro bono work. If you did just pro bono work, you'd go bust, you wouldn't be working. Um, so at, at the end of the day, law is about money, um, and you, you have to decide yourself which area of law to go into, um, but make the decision based on. What, what, where your, where your passion is at the back of your mind? Um, how can you support yourself and perhaps your, your family as well? If, if, if you were to go down that particular route. Okay, I think I've waffled on a lot and yeah, enough about criminal law. Any questions? Um, there's no questions in the chat, but we can open it up to if people just wanted to ask any question in the chat. Um, and then I can read them out for Jonathan to answer. Um, it can be related to the topics we've heard or if there's just a different question you'd like to ask, um, we can help with that too. Or if you also want to come on mic, you can also have that option. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Tara. Um, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful. It's one of the most useful and kind of realistic um, presentations I think I've I've heard in the last few months of attending countless numbers of these so thank you so much um, I think um, I'm, it's not really a question it's just um, a kind of a statement really after your presentation because I'm I'm kind of in a bit of a dilemma because while I want to I'm, I'm not by nature a terribly competitive person um, and the idea of um, doing, you know, assessment days and stuff and all of that, the stuff that you, the gubbins you have to do for those commercial training contracts fills me with complete horror. Um, I, um, I also, you know, want there to be a kind of a half decent remuneration for the work done and while I am interested in the kind of you know immigration human rights um kind of side of things um I'm just I'm having to weigh up now the realities of what that might mean doing a train doing a training contract in that kind of area maybe in the high street but then it not being possible to move into a kind of commercial firm afterwards so I might just I, I think after what you've said I'm thinking I may have to um just try and face that um the horrors of you know trying to get a commercial training contract okay Tara ha have you got experience in both types of firms 
No. Um, so I'm um, I've been I'm doing a GDL. Um, yeah. I've been working for 17 years in in classical music. So lots of different kinds of companies, um, um, you know, orchestral touring and um record label A&R and lots of different things um I've done a lot of contracts and I know a bit about intellectual property but I'm not wedded to staying in that area um so yeah okay so so um where do you see yourself going then is it is it is it down the line of doing the doing the commercial contract work and the IP and that type of thing is that what's brought you into law um yes and no I mean I've got a variety of interests I mean it wouldn't I wouldn't be averse to continuing with with intellectual property contract related stuff um but um I'm not completely you know wedded to it I'm I'm open basically if I was you I go and get some experience in in both sides so that you go down the go and have a look at the high street see what you think yeah Try, try some of those areas out. If you've already done contract work, you know what's going to be involved with it. Lots of staring at pieces of paper and or screens and, and, and going into the nitty gritty. IP is not much different really, although it can be a bit more exciting at times. Um, but if you don't have the evidence in order to make a decision like that, it's, it's a difficult decision to make. Whereas if you go and get the evidence by getting the work experience, it, it can open doors for you in terms of making you decide that actually you do want to go down the commercial contract route and you do need to go and get a training contract in commercial. Um, so, so, so far as coming from diverse backgrounds is concerned, if you're coming out of the music industry, and many years ago, I went for a training contract application with Ebersheds and I pitched up, pitched up as an office um, for an assessment day. And I think there were about 20 people sat in the room. And I, at the time I was a mature student by a few years, I was the youngest one there. Um, quite, quite a lot of the applicants were in their 30s, their 40s. They were ex-police officers, teacher, a nurse. Um, someone said he was a former Conservative Party deputy chairman or something looking to get, looking to get into law. Um, so it, I think quite a lot of firms, particularly bigger ones, likely to have had life experiences and can appreciate the value of taking you on as opposed to somebody coming through at the age of 21 who's got no experience whatsoever. Um, so it does stand you in good stead, particularly when you've got that level of experience as well, if you've been working around contracts for donkey years. Okay, thank you. And just one more question. Um, um, it's, I've, I mean, obviously throughout my career, I've worked a lot with in-house lawyers. And um, I just wondered what kinds of, um, routes you are in your experience um routes to being an in-house lawyer that you kind of know of or would advise or would not advise yeah sure um you um quite well not quite a lot i'd say about 10 percent of um in-house lawyers who trained in in-house had a had a training contract working in an in-house legal department and stayed in it for the whole of their career the other 90 percent have come from private practice in my experience um, so that they 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 trained with one of the larger um, firms and then moved into in-house after that. Um, so if you're thinking of getting into in in-house, it's a good idea if you can manage it to get as broad a seat as possible. Um, so corporate corporate commercial commercial finance commercial contracts commercial litigation is not bad either. So the more sort of generalist ones because quite a lot of in-house lawyers even when you're working in a bigger in-house legal department, quite a lot of the work is more generalist. Because if it's more specialist, the in-house team will, will, will farm it out to a private practice specialist team to deal with. So in-house tends to be more generalist, private practice tends to be more specialist. Okay, thank you. All right. That's really helpful, thank you. Okay, is that the last? Um, is there any other questions that anyone wants to ask um, before we stop there? I'll just say, if you do have any questions, if you just go onto the website, drop me an email across, we, we, we turn your question into a blog article, 
stick it on the website, send and send you a link. And we don't we don't we don't charge anyone to to do that. It, it helps us and helps you. Well, I don't think there's any more questions coming through. So um, thanks so much, Jonathan, for that talk. It was really great. Um, I just put my video back on. Um, so if there's no more questions, um, feel free to start logging off, guys. Um, and thank you so much for attending this event. Okay, thank you. Um, I was just going to say, Jess, all the best with you um, trying to get others involved as well. It's a fantastic idea, and I think if you go, have you have you had any other recruiters come through to offer you a tour? Um, not recruiters. We are looking at doing a panel event um in April, so with some law firms. So I think at the moment we have um D, we have TWM solicitors in Guildford. Oh yes, yeah. Um, and then we have DR solicitors, which is like the medical firm. Yeah, right. um, and then we have Clyde and Co. Also, who are willing to speak and then we have um, a barrister from Guildford Chambers um, who's going to offer a different opinion on the topics we're going to be asking um, so I'm just organising that now um, for April um, yeah so just to get that sort of stuff moving well just because we're early on just to get some events out there um, but I'll just stop the recording